we have been in Jonah looking at the rebellious prophet. And as we look at Jonah, we have seen that he has tried to flee God's presence with Noah to no avail. He has he tried to not go to Nineveh, which was his choice. God gives us choices. Jonah made the choice to disobey God and run in the opposite direction. Uh, but God also has choices, and God chose to pursue him and get his attention, bring judgment through the storm, bring salvation through the fish. Jonah repented. Jonah went to Nineveh, and he began to preach the word that was last week. And, and that's where we're going to start this week. This week, we're going we're gonna to read verses 4 and 5 again that we looked at last week, and then we're going to continue going through the, the chap, this, this chapter, Jonah chapter 3, until we get to the end. And actually, even this morning, I was thinking about some different ways that I was going to structure this, and I had planned to just mention another part of Scripture, the two more parts of Scripture, actually, mention them and then go back to Jonah, but... We're actually going to go ahead and spend some time at the end of this sermon in Psalm 51. Carol, if, if we will be going to Psalm 51, which is not in the computer right now, but you're a superstar, so I know it's going to be okay. As we talk about Jonah, as we talk about the fact that he did repent, of course, he had special circumstances. He was in the bottom of the ocean when he cries out for help, the bottom of the sea when he cries out for help, and God brings him help through the form of a fish, and he goes into the belly of the fish, which is not the greatest form of help that I could think of, but it was better than the alternative, which was death. And God knew that from the belly of the fish that he would be able to think about what he had done, think about the fact that he chose to go his own direction rather than God's. Therefore, he had time to repent. He thanked God. That was all of chapter 2 was his prayer to thank God. As he's thanking God, and as he's finishing his prayer, the the fish spits him out. That's where we picked up in chapter 3, and then in chapter 3, he goes into Nineveh. He begins to preach to the people and, and tell them what's going to happen. He gets that second chance. Jonah gets a second chance. And as, as Elizabeth and Megan just sang about, God was the same. He never changed throughout all of that. But Jonah needed a second chance, and Jonah got the second chance. And with the second chance, he went to Nineveh, and he told the people what God had told him to do from the beginning. That's where we're going to begin Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So as soon as the people began hearing, they called for a fast, which is just going without food for spiritual purposes. They were were doing that to show God how sorry they were. There are different reasons in the Bible for fasting, but this is the one mentioned here. And then they put on sackcloth, which was itchy and just another way to show God that they were sorry. It was a physical, I guess, humiliation almost. It was a physical humbling of themselves. And, you know, we would think of, you know, when we get into a posture of getting on our knees before God or getting on our faces before God, to pray to him, then that would be an example of humility that we show today. Of course, people still fast. Uh, Jesus told his disciples, when you fast, and he gave some instructions indicating that, that it was just assumed they were going to fast. It, it, 
these things were happening for spiritual purposes. But the thing I want us to really pay attention to is the simple fact that Jonah came with truth. The people heard the truth that because of their actions, their wickedness, their sinfulness, and just as we'll see when the king speaks, uh, their violence, because of these things, God was going to judge them. When Jonah gave this message, the people turned. They repented, and they relied on God's mercy. And that's what our sermon is about today, is that repentance leads to mercy. And so uh, that's where we stopped last week. Let's keep going in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Now, there are many kings mentioned in Scripture, all throughout the Scripture. Um, there's, there's three kings of, of, of God's people that are mentioned, uh, earthly kings. Uh, that would be Saul, David, and Solomon. Not only are there the three kings mentioned of Israel, that three main kings before the kingdom splits, but there are tons of kings mentioned in Scripture, not just uh, good guys, but kings of the enemy, and then God uses kings of the enemy to do good things sometimes, and, and this is an, an example of another king who has a lot of influence in their house. Now, today is Father's Day, and I know that all of you men in here are kings of your house, right? Well, okay, maybe, maybe we'll just think that in our own minds, but, but I do think that regardless of our legal status in our homes, we have influence. We all have influence. And just as on Mother's Day, when Michael Pettit was here, he was preaching on the importance of, uh, of how a mother can influence her household. Today, I want us to look at how a father can influence his household. And I just want to be clear, and I think we all know this, a father influences his household whether he's trying to or not. You are going to influence your homes. You're going to influence your children. If you don't have children, you're going to influence your spouse. If you don't have a spouse, you're going to influence the other family that you have. If you don't have other family, you're going to influence the people that you come into contact with. All of us are going to influence people. And sometimes... God gives us positions of respect or authority where people are going to look up to us. I think we all have these positions, right? I mean, if I look at my life, uh, I'm a preacher, but I'm also a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, a brother, the older brother, and y'all know how the oldest are just incredibly gifted, and, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding, but sort of. But God has given me positions of influence. You know, I just finished coaching John's Little League team. You know, those, those boys, eight and under, six, seven, and eight-year-olds, they're looking for role models, right? Even if they have fa- fathers in their home who are doing a great job, they're still just at a very impressionable age where they're looking for role models. And so we have responsibilities, whether it's, in our homes as fathers, whether it's no matter what your role is, no matter what your relationship is, you have the ability to influence people, right? If you work in a gas station, you have the ability to change someone's day. Am I right? For the good or for the worse, you have that ability. If, if you are volunteering in the community, 
you have an, an opportunity to influence your community. And as you serve people, most people will begin to respect you, will begin to look up to you, and it gives you even more of an opportunity to influence people. And here we have a king. We have the king of Nineveh, and, and I don't know what this title, we've talked about this a little bit before, but Nineveh is a city. It's a great city. It's a huge city, but it's still just a city. And so is the king like a mayor, or is this the king of all of Syria, or the Syrians? And, and us, Syria, I should say. What is the role here? Is this like a mayor? I'm not sure. But we know that he is the leader of this city. And we know that he has great influence in this city. And we know that when he says something, it carries weight. And for a lot of us in here, we have the ability to influence people just as the king did. And let's be the right kind of influence. Let's be the right kind of role model. And so, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe. This is very symbolic for a king to do. He's, he's not king. He's removing his robe covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Again, this is just a cultural thing that they did. We see this a lot in the Old Testament to show repentance, to show remorse, to show humility. And there, he's doing, this is the king, the most powerful man there, and he is choosing to do this. For those of us who have positions of influence, and I believe that that's all of us, we have a responsibility, first, not to put on some kind of show or front pretending like we are more powerful than we are. We are not God. We, no matter how powerful we are, we need to put ourselves in a place of humility before God, at least before God. And I believe that humility goes a long ways. But the king here... He removes his robe. He removes, he puts on sackcloth. He, he sits in ashes. He's showing God and the people. It's very symbolic of the fact that he knows he was wrong and that he is, is putting himself below God. And here we see for the second time, and the first time in this book, we saw that the sailors who didn't know God came to know God even through Jonah's disobedience. And this time we see that finally Jonah obeys, finally he comes to Nineveh and he preaches repent, and the people repent. And we see the influence that Jonah has, but we also see the influence that the king has in this next verse. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree the king, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. So he is spitting out a decree, everyone repent. Everyone cry out. In fact, get your uh, chihuahua and put him in sackcloth. He's saying cover everybody. We want to make sure that God hears us and that he knows that we're sincere. And, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent 
and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? Who knows? These people, again, they had a reputation that preceded Jonah's visit to Nineveh, that that they were unruly, that they were violent. And here the king is even mentioning that. And he's saying, we need to turn from that. We need to cry out mightily. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. And the same thing is true today. Here we are, we live our lives, and so often we don't even think about God. We don't even think about how our lives are affecting the people around us. So often we just think about ourselves or we think about our family. Sometimes we, as trying to be good parents, trying to be a good father, um, we work incredible hours to provide for our family. But at what expense? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't work hard or work incredible hours, but we need to make sure that we're also influencing our children, that we're spending time with them, that we're spending time with our spouses, that when we're there, we're making it count. And sometimes we may even come to church. And in our coming to church, we, we have the right motive. We want to be here because we know it's the right thing to do. Um, but, but sometimes we're not even paying attention to the truth of what we're supposed to be doing here, of coming to worship God, coming to focus on Him, coming to get right with Him, coming to make sure that we're fellowshipping with other believers and that we're recharging our batteries to go throughout the week and to continue to worship Him day by day. And so many times, even we who live in the Bible Belt, even we who come to church, we lose focus of what we're supposed to be doing. We lose focus on the heart of the matter. And we lose focus on God. And we need to repent. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you've been struggling with, a specific thing that you know isn't right, that you know you shouldn't do. Or maybe there's something in your life that you know you should be doing, and you haven't been doing it. And you know it's not pleasing to God. And you know it goes against His wishes. Who knows? Maybe if we call out to Him mightily, Maybe if we cry out to him and ask him to forgiveness, to forgive us, he will. Now, a lot has changed from the time that the king of Nineveh cried out until now. The most important thing would be the most important thing, that Jesus came. That Jesus came to this earth. He was born as a man. And the Bible teaches that Jesus existed before that, that he has always existed with God. Um, we see in Genesis 1.26 when it says, uh, and God says, let us make man in our image. Who is us and who is our? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. And, and then fast forward to when the time was right. God himself, Jesus, uh, was born as a baby. He, God became man, and he became man for a very specific purpose not to rule over us and tell us what to do. He was already God. He already had that right. He came to be a servant. He came to die for us. And why did he have to die for us? Because God is good and God is just and he has to do what's right. And the Bible says that all of us are sinners. All of us have sinned. And we need to to answer to God for that sin. 
And God, being holy and just, has to punish that sin. But the punishment is that we have to be separated from God and his glory and his goodness and his holiness. And so God sent his son, Jesus, to come to this earth and to take that punishment for us. Jesus willingly and, and wantingly, he didn't want to die, he didn't want to experience pain, but he wanted to make a bridge between us and the Father. He wanted to make a way for us to be forgiven for our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay the price. He paid the price, and Jesus did that. So all we have to do is to go and to cry out to God, and he will hear us, and he will answer us. And, and that's in the same way, in the same manner before Jesus came, when people cried out to him, when people put their faith in him, when people believed in him, then that belief got God's attention. He, he listened to it, and he did something great about it over and over again. And here, there's no difference. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So what's going on in our lives right now? What do we need to cry out to God about? Is there something that we've been doing that we shouldn't have been doing, or is there something that we need to be doing that we haven't been doing? We can cry out to God. We can ask God to help us. And, and maybe we have become stagnant. We have fallen into this, this trap of knowing that Jesus is God, knowing that God is good, but it isn't making its way to our heart and transforming the way we live. We're not living for him. And now's the time where we can call out to God, where we can show some humility, where we can ask God to help us. There's a story of another king in the Bible. It's 2 Samuel 12, and I won't read this, but I'll tell you the story, um, and then we're going to go to Psalm 51. In, in 2 Samuel 11, David has his, the episode with uh, Bathsheba, and who was another man's wife. And not only did David have an affair, but he tried to cover it up. And he tried covering it up by getting Bathsheba's husband drunk so that he would think he was the father. Um, didn't work. And not only that, uh, when it didn't work, eventually, because Uriah was a faithful soldier and he didn't want to do that while his men were, was in the field, um, when, when it didn't work, David sent Uriah back to the front lines with a letter and he handed it to the general, and the general read it. And the letter said, when the fighting gets heavy, put Uriah on the front lines and then draw back. So in essence, David killed Uriah. And David thought he got away with it. He, everything was good in his mind. And then in 2 Samuel 12, a prophet named Nathan came to David. And he said, David, in your country there is a man, and all he has is one little ewe lamb. There's another guy who has everything he could ever want. He has, he has all the riches that you can imagine. And uh, the guy who was rich had some friends coming to town, and he was going to have a feast. And instead of taking one of his many sheep, he went and took this one man's sheep. And David was furious. He said, who is this man? Because he, he's, he's going to be punished. And Nathan said, David, the man is you. 
you have, you're the king. You have everything you could want. And you took Uriah's wife. You took Bathsheba. And Psalm 51 uh, is the response to that confrontation in 2 Samuel 12. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 51. And this is going to be our conclusion, is this psalm. And I'm not going to talk much about it. I'm going to read it as an example of repentance. As an example of true humility and how we should cry out to God. And this isn't just some formula where, okay, let me pretend to be this. Let me say this because the Bible says to say it. And then this will happen. This is an example of when God gets a hold of your heart and convicts you. This is what repentance looks like. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. I'm going to stop there for a second. We've seen a lot here. The first thing David does is he doesn't go to God and say, God, I defeated Goliath. I helped your people be successful in battle. I did this for you. Forget all that. Who is David compared to God? David went to God when he knew his sin, and he said, have mercy on me, in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast ways. Just as they sang in the song earlier, God never changes. God is still merciful. The same God who loved Nineveh enough to, to not let Jonah run away. The same God who said, I will judge you, Nineveh. I will overthrow you. When repentance came, that same God showed mercy. And so for us in this room right now, whatever sins we're struggling with, we need to come before God and forget what we've done for him. Forget whoever we are because none of that means anything. All that matters is who his son is. All that matters is that through Christ he is willing to forgive us. That Jesus has already paid a debt for those sins. 
for our sins. He's already paid the payment for that debt. And so we come to Christ and we cry out to him and we say, have mercy on me. Not, not God, not, don't have mercy on me because of who I am. Have mercy on me because I know your son. Have mercy on me because I know that he paid the debt for me. And for those of you in here who maybe you've never uh, given your life to Jesus, you've never become a follower of Jesus, you've never asked him to save you, you've never repented of your sins and turned from your sins and, and began a new life in Christ, if that's you, then this morning you can come to God and you can say, have mercy on me, oh God. Save me. Help me to live for you. And for those of you in here who are already saved, you can come to God this morning knowing the sins in your life and say, have mercy on me. Forgive me. And, and you're not saved all over again when you, when you do that, but you're made right with God. Your relationship with him your, is, is secure, but your fellowship with him is made right. David, who already had faith in God, who already believed in God, comes to God and says, have mercy on me. And he says he knows his transgressions in verse 3. He knows his transgression and that his sin is ever before him. And he sees it, and he just comes to him, and he even says, you delight what's on the inside, and David knows that what's on the inside is not good for him, and he needs to be transformed. He needs to be changed. And so he comes to God with that, with that truth. And he even says in verse 7, purge me with the hyssop, which is a branch of a tree. He's like, give me a spanking. I deserve discipline. Do that for me. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. He is coming to God with, and putting himself in God's hands. And we need to do the same this morning. We need to come to God with our sins in all honesty, in, in what's true in the secret heart, what we know of ourselves. We need to come to God and we need to just throw ourselves at his feet and at his mercy. And we need to come in repentance. We need to come willing to turn from our sins just as the people of Nineveh did. We need to come ready to turn from our sins. And he asked God in verse 10 to create in him a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And don't take your presence from me. Of course, we, there's this, in a sense, we can never escape the presence of God, as Jonah found out. God is everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. But at the same time, God can withdraw his perceived presence of what we feel and what we can sense. His, his, he can withdraw his presence in that manner. And, what a, a, and I know I've experienced this feeling. What a desperate and lonely place to be. I want to experience the presence of God. I want to experience his fullness and his goodness and I want to know that I'm in a right relationship with him and right fellowship with him. I want to know that my life is pleasing to him. I want to know that I'm the man that God has called me to be. I want to know that I'm the father that God has called me to be. I want to not just live my life right so that I can be blessed. I want to live my life right so that all the people around me can see an example of what it means to love God and to be loved by him. And that's what I want for all of us. Can you imagine what our church and what our community, what our state would look like if just the men who are sitting in this room right now got on fire for the Lord and he used them to be the, the husbands, the fathers, the dads that they could be? But not only that, what if he got a hold of the women in this room right now? 
I've seen women do more incredible things than men could ever do. I was raised by a single mom, so I, you know. And so I know that, that God can do incredible things through people when he gets a hold of their heart, when he gets a hold of them. And then young people. Do you know that almost every single revival that we have recorded in history, almost every single one of them came, were started through young people. God got a hold of, of hearts of young people and set them, on, set them on fire in such a radical way that even the adults couldn't deny what was going on. And, and that fire spread even to adults. And most of the time, that was college-age students. But we need to be praying for our young people. We need to be setting an example for our young people. Let me finish reading this chapter. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praises. So once... We have been forgiven of this blood guiltiness. Let us sing his praises. Let us tell people about what he has done for us. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He's not wanting us to go through the motions. That's not what he's wanting. So if you have sin in your life, the right thing for you to do is not just to show up at church. It's not just to go to Sunday school. Okay, those are good things. But if you're trying to do that, to please God, to make him happy with you despite your sin, then it's not going to work. Because God could care less about us going through the motions of religion. Even the religion that he has set in place if our hearts are not right. Now, when our hearts are right, then we're not just going through motions. We're worshiping God. And that's where David's getting Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's all of our time. There's a lot of sinners in this room. One has been preaching this sermon. And when we have sin, unconfessed sin in our life, the thing for us to do is to ask God to break our hearts over that sin. And when he does, when we know our sin, when we realized our sin, we go to him and we cry out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy or your great compassion. Lord, have mercy on me. And we, as did the people of Nineveh, as did the king of Nineveh, we humble ourselves and we put ourselves in a place where we desire God and whatever he wants, where we throw ourselves at his mercy and we see how he responds. We've come to a time of our service where we're going to have an invitation. And this is just a thing that we do to give us an opportunity to respond to the message that we just heard, to respond to the truth of what we saw in Nineveh and the example that the people and the kings set, what we saw when David was caught in his sin and he truly felt conviction over it 
and went to God and, and threw himself at his mercy. And we take all that truth that we just heard and we try to process it, and this is the time for you to respond. Maybe you want to come to the altar and get on your knees and just put yourself in a posture of humility by, by literally getting on your knees or getting on your face and crying out to God and asking him to forgive you. Or maybe you haven't been setting the kind of example that you want to set, and so you're coming to God and just saying, God, I love you, you know I love you, but help me to be more intentional about the way that I live for you and, and, and show that to others that I have influence over or with. I don't know how God might be convicting you this morning, but you respond in whatever way he is. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. And I just pray that, Lord, that you would have compassion on us. Lord, that you would convict us of our sins. Lord, we can't turn from sin that we don't even know is there or that we're not convicted of. And so God, convict us of our sins. And when you convict us, help us to have the humility to run straight to you and ask for forgiveness, not to try to cover it up, not to try to make excuses, but Lord, help us to run to you and ask for forgiveness. And God, I just pray that as we sing this song now, that you would convict our hearts to respond to you in an immediate fashion, just as the people of Nineveh did when they heard, repent, or when they heard that you were going to destroy the city. Lord, help us to respond to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.